This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart of the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Furminger, and today I am honored and delighted and well chuffed chuffed I say. Um, Chuffed means like happy. Mm -hmm. I I don't know why I'm deviating from the script here. I got to keep going. Okay, I'm all those things to welcome Andy Hodgson back to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. You've heard Andy on this podcast before. He was one of the guests in a panel I hosted this past summer for VAF entitled Amplifying Black Voices, joining Rikia Bernard, Miriam Berry, Jem Garrard, and Zach Lepofsky in discussing the racism and white supremacy in the Vancouver film and television industry, and specifically how it has impacted and how it impacts black artists. Andy, who is an accomplished cinematographer and director, spoke about how he is often the lone black crew member on local sets, or like he'll see another one and they high five each other. You know, this unspoken or spoken acknowledgement that, yep, they're the only black ones there. He spoke about his reluctance to grow his hair out or wear shirts that represent his culture. The panel was widely watched and deeply moving, and you can find it as an episode of the YVR Screen Scene podcast in your podcast feed. A few short months later, Andy released El Color Negro, a short that I can only describe as poetry, poetry in motion, um, with images and with words, and it explores the concept of the color black. Is it a color? Is it an, an idea? What does blackness mean in this historic moment? It's a staggeringly beautiful work of art from an artist who has only ever fired on all cylinders, from what my research tells me. Born in Ecuador and raised in the Middle East, Andy moved to Vancouver in 2001 to pursue film. He graduated from Capilano University's cinematography program and began his career in film working on big budget films and commercials. Uh, According to his official bio, Andy quickly realized his passion for indie filmmaking and began producing and shooting his own independent films, commercials, and music videos. He won nominations and awards at the Whistler Film Festival and the Milan International Filmmaker Festival, which I totally want to go to, my God. And in 2017, he was DP and producer of his first feature film, Woodland, a stunning mind fuck of a thriller. And honestly, yes, Andy, you can swear on this podcast. That stars Richard Harmon and Phil Granger. And it's now on all VOD platforms. And you can find my interviews with uh, director John Silverberg and Richard and Phil in your podcast feeds. And while you're in your podcast feeds, also give a listen to my interview with Jesse Anthony about Brother I Cry, the award-winning and critically acclaimed feature about a young Indigenous man struggling with addiction and trauma and family issues, for which Andy also served as DP and producer. Um, He's also got his very own feature film, El Suspiro de Silencio. Yeah, did I get it? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Set to be released in early 22. All of this in addition to working on Vancouver thrillers and rom-coms and the first season of one of my daughter's favorite Netflix shows ever, Project MC Square. So today I want to talk with this remarkable artist, Andy, that's you, uh, about (laughs) his journey with his art and how his art is changing. Because Andy's is a journey we all need to follow, and we should all want to be part of this ride. Andy Hodgson, welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you for having me, Sabrina. It's a pleasure being here. Um, can I correct one thing, though? No, what did I get wrong? What did I do? Uh, so I'm a cinematographer-producer who has now started directing with El Color Negro being my first directorial debut short. But I have serviced hundreds of directors uh, in the 17 years of career. So, I mean, in terms, it is kind of directing, but 
you know, just so people don't get the misconception. I, I get it. How much, like, do you, but, okay, this is not even, I was thinking we were going to start in a different place, but I think it's important to start with, with labels, how other people view us, how we view ourselves. Do you consider yourself, like, do you consider yourself to be a director now? Or are you still like reticent because, you know, you've only got the one? I'm very humble with my experience for directing. Um, I can say I support a lot of directors' visions uh, as a producer and also as their cinematographer. Yeah. Which, in conclusion, it is kind of directing. You're just not physically directing the actors and sort of scene to scene and the story. But with El Color Negro, I sort of took a leap into jumping into the director chair telling myself, okay, I've been in this other chairs before. Yeah. So now I feel like I'm ready for this chair, which, you know, my passion, my experience, um, everything that came with that in the 17 years, I finally felt uh, that I was ready to direct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm going to go back a little bit before El Color Negro, because I sure. think from, I, I would assume... I'm assuming uh, that that panel that we did in the summer um, represented, I mean, it represented a lot to a lot of people, mm -hmm. um, you know, but that's in some ways maybe, you know, that might've sparked something to, to make El Colo Negro. So I guess I want to, like, cause we all, we were stating massive truths. Like we, we were literally watched by thousands of people saying stuff like the Vancouver film and television industry is racist. Uh, it's built on a foundation of white supremacy. Um, we had a lot of people in the comments saying, wow, you're so brave. You're finally saying it. Somebody's saying it. Thank you so much. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and so I'm wondering about how, how participating in that panel, how speaking those truths, how that, you know, impacted you um, after that conversation, you know, after we had finished, you know, the conversation that day and release it to the world? Yeah, it's it sort of, uh, I would say it opened my eyes to various opportunities for us. And I think that's what sparked uh, a lot of that. Also the George Floyd, you know, in me saying, okay, this is time to step into the directing role. And instead of, you know, putting another, piece of media on my social media or, you know, the, the sort of the black square. I just, I wanted to really just uh, get an explanation, an image, a voice, a vision out that was not media oriented. Mm -hmm. And that would make people think and that would sort of pick your own battles because, you know, we bombarded with so much media about what was happening. I wanted to take sort of my inspirations with my art and the work that I do and uh, really own it and, and have something for people to look at and, and listen to and have them think like, oh, wow, the color black. I, I've never thought about that. And yeah, that actually kind of consists with racism and, you know, uh, black is in the same shade as white. So what does that really mean? So that, that's kind of what sparked it all. Yeah. What what was the response to your participation in the panel? Um, you know, what, what kind of feedback were you hearing? You know, both from, you know, uh, people of color in the industry, you know, as well as, as well as the white people who work in this industry. I got a lot of great, uh, amazing messages saying, you know, you're brave to say the kind of things. Uh, obviously the shirt that I was wearing as well, you know, representing the, the culture and everything that came with. But it was really inspirational. I think a lot of people saw me as somebody who, you know, stands behind what they say and supports their community and, and supports their culture and is really open and honest uh, to speak on behalf of everybody else. Yeah, that's a, that can come with a lot of pressure as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, exactly. like, like, oh, but I, but, but then to have the, the art that comes from that. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about, um, you, you describe where the inspiration comes, but you know, 
where, you know, how you developed, you know, the visuals in El Color Negro and, and, you know, I mean, we got, there's, there's a beautiful, there's a beautiful moment where we see Rakia on screen with her, her children, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, so the, where the words, the images, you know, the community that, you know, that came out, like, can you tell us a bit about the, the, the genesis and journey of that? Um, well, it's funny because I woke up one morning and I really wanted to make a difference. Um, and I thought about... Wait, I'm sorry. You woke up in the morning. Like, the, it's your first thought instead of being like, I need a I coffee. Woke, I tell like, you, I woke up one morning shortly after the George Floyd thing and everything was happening. And I said, how can I make a difference? Wow. And I sort of sat in my living room and I kept thinking about it and I'm like, okay, black. And I just kept saying the word black to myself. Okay, we have black people, we have black this, black that. And I always thought to myself, you know, I never thought I've researched what the color black really is. Hmm. So I jumped on my computer right away and unbeknownst to me, you know, hours later, I have all these articles, I'm reading all these, these uh, sort of media things and, and you know, the, the history of the color black. And I was reading uh, articles, I sort of started seeing sentences that made sense and that kind of coincide with racism. And I picked a couple of sentences from here, put them over there. So it was kind of a bit of a puzzle. And that's where I knew I had something. That's where I knew I had a, a good concept uh, in terms of explaining what the color black was. And in terms of uh, cross-referencing colors shades, uh, you know, color theory, historical references, philosophy, and all of that to racism. Um, and from there sort of came the images, you know, I, I had a bunch of um, film cans, 35 mil film in my fridge. And as I opened my fridge to eat lunch, I thought, wow, this is it. I'm going to shoot this on film. Mm. And as I said that to myself, I thought, okay, the roaring 20s, the Roaring Traders were really important for black people. You know, it's sort of, it was uplifting. They were getting speakeasies. They, it was sort of a movement for them there. And so I thought, why not, you know, use black and white objects, uh, poise images of black women, men and children, and do a narration mm-hmm. uh, through all of that with sort of the inspiration that I got from the articles and Rakia as well helped with the script and my dad, John Mather, who was a 30 year linguistics also helped us with the script to put it together. So that's kind of how it all came about. And and I woke up one morning and by the nighttime I I had the idea. Wow. What a day you had that day. That was a great Um, day. (laughs) That was a good day. (laughs) Um, What, what kind of conclusions did you draw during that day? as you were doing the readings and, and, and putting it all together. What, what, well, what, did, what did you, what conclusions have you drawn about, about the word and the idea that is, well, that is black? Well, that I can make a difference with my art. And that's really important. You know, I may not be sort of a powerful speaker or, you know, a motivational speaker, but visually, and I have the tools to, to make something creative that's really going to impact people and make them think. So that was one. And also directing. Mm-hmm. That was another one that came to mind. And I said, oh, wow, you know, I don't need to go and direct other people's things. I just put my own little shorts together that really matter to me. And, and you know, if it doesn't matter to the rest of the world, that's fine. Yeah. But they're going to impact somebody. Somebody out there is going to watch it and say, wow, this is incredible. And it hit me. And now I understand what is, you know, why we look at this this way or why we look at black people that way or, you know, any other races. So I think in conclusion, those were the two very important things that I yeah. got from that day. What I love too is that you, you chose the 20s um, because we are in the 20s now too. You know, <laughs> right? We're in like yeah. the new, the new uh, a different kind of roaring 20s as well. Um, so the experience of directing then, you know, to watch to watch the film and we will have a link to the film uh, in the footnotes for this episode. So people, honestly, you can even pause it right now, go and take the few minutes to watch it and then come right back. 
Okay, you're back. Great. Um, so, you know, you can read like just so many different stories in, in everybody's eyes, you know, because it's not like there's a, it's not like there's, they're speaking, but they are speaking, you know, I mean, you talk about different mm -hmm. ways that you can use your voice. So what kind of, what kind of directions were you giving and or what were you hearing from the actors about, you know, what they were thinking as they were, as they were, you know, staring you down? Right. Uh yeah, it was really interesting, you know, as each one came in and, you know, we are in a pandemic, so we couldn't have them all there, which I would have loved to, so they can all sort of feed up each other. So we staggered them and they actually might have not seen each other during the shoot. I find all. that so incredible because <laughs> there is such a thread, I guess and it was your job, you know, to, to maintain that thread, but I guess also yes. the material in some ways as well. But yeah, sorry, continue. Tell me about those actors. Yeah, so... So, you know, uh, specifically Rakia, because I work closely with her, she brought a lot to the table in terms of the real deep black empowerment, uh, you know, which helped me and inspired me a lot. Uh, other actors brought sort of their own uh, uh, style and their own sort of uh, uh, interpretation of what they thought the script was. But mainly for most actors, I looked at them in the eyes and, and I said to them, you know, you are the owner of a speakeasy in 1922 but you also feel the weight of all the slavery all the racism for the hundreds of years that's been going on and i want to feel that you know i want to feel that gratitude but i want to feel that pain mm. i want to feel that release but i also want to feel that containment and i think everybody portrayed it in their eyes and in in, in their in their sort of uh, facial expressions for, yeah. for the direction that I was giving them. What about the kids? Like, um, was it a similar kind of direction as well? Or, or did you alter? I mean, because they're just so, it, it was very, especially with Rakia and her kids, it was very emotional, you know, mm -hmm. you know, knowing Rakia, like, not just, like, just, not just the added of what I've seen on screen, but then also knowing Rakia, knowing her kids, knowing Rakia, her incredible journey of, you know, the last year and, um, right. and everything that she's faced in the years before that, you know, so d did you change, you know, what you said to the, the kids or, or um, was, were you, was it the same direction? Uh, it, it would, you know, actually, I let Rakia kind of deal with her kids uh, yeah. a little, a little <laughs> bit idea. more because, you know, it's, it's, it, they were connecting to her more and yeah. I'm not a director, oh, unbeknownst to me, uh, I'm not a director who is going to sort of force anything on anybody. I think it needs to come natural. Yeah. But, you know, I, I feel, you know, a, a couple of times her son was kind of smiling. So I said, you know, okay, here comes the camera, you know, like look deep into the camera and let's just be a little bit more serious. Uh, Rakia's daughter did a great job, but I let Rakia kind of take control of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, she she told me that they had a great time. That yeah, especially they, her they son did. was like smiling. So I was like, yeah, no, I can't really yeah. do that. Um, so what what comes next then? What what what? I mean, because this is clearly this is a debut, which to me says it's not the end. It's only the beginning. You know. So so we're like as a, as a director, as that kind of storyteller, what stories do you want to tell? Where do you want to go next? Uh, so I've thought very, very long and hard about uh, El Color Negro and sort of how it's picking up a lot of steam. Um, you know, I've been interviewed by multiple magazines. I have an interview with Vancouver Magazine later on today. Um, and as well as, uh, you know, the Vancouver Short Film Festival. But I want to do a trilogy of shorts um, that pertain to Black Lives Matter uh, culture, you know, Black empowerment, um, and I'm already. Uh, I already came up with the idea for my next film, uh, which I had put a, a, a developing grant for, which I hope to get, uh, and we find out at the end of January. But uh, Jesse Anthony as, uh, and myself will be actually today, later tonight, putting the pitch package for the next short, uh, which wow. will be called Mulata. Ha have you done your exploration of? I mean, of that word. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm a yeah. lot of myself. It, it, kind of going back to how I found the idea in the uh, 1920s, uh, Langston Hughes is a poet, and he was one of the first black poets who said, I'm not a black poet, I'm just a poet. Mm. And I sort of went through his poetry for hours and hours on end, and you know, I wanted something to impact me. And mulatto comes from the word of 
uh, it's hard to say, but it's pretty much the masters in a plantation raping the black woman slaves and then having uh, mulatto kids, but the sort of white and black child is not considered white, so he's therefore enslaved. And uh, Langston Hughes has a really powerful poem that we're actually trying to get the rights to now so I can make the short film. And uh, that's all I'm going to say right that's, now. Oh, I, you I, said I, a I, lot. I don't want to give you. it away. I don't want to give it away. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Thank you so much for, for explaining that so um, beautifully. I, I loved that it's Jesse Anthony as well who's, who's participating, uh, who's collaborating with you on this. Can you talk to, about her a bit as a, what kind of a collaborator she is, you know, it's not your first time working together. Right, yeah, well, I, I always enjoy sort of her, her creative uh, mentality. Um, you know, I find that her and I connect really well because the native community and, uh, you know, my, my black South American background, we have a lot to talk about. You know, she grew up in a, in a sort of harsh environment. I grew up in a harsh environment down in, in Central and South America uh, in the 80s. And we sort of just connect. We connect with passion we connect with with you know with fear of where we've come from we connect with wisdom we connect with words you know and and i feel like what better than a collaborator that not only i can understand his situation but she can understand my situation as well yeah there's a there's a shorthand there of of trauma informed mm -hmm. storytelling maybe is that fair to say um, okay let's do some time travel because you mentioned growing up in the in the eighties in, in uh, Central and South America, let's. I, I want to know, like, what kind of a like what kind of a kid were you, and what did you want to be <laughs> when you grew up? Well, um, in Central America, I was uh, I was raised mostly in Nicaragua through the eighties. Which, uh, if the listeners don't know, there was a heavy revolution between the Contras and the Sandinistas, um, and sort of I lived through the state of a civil war. Uh, for about nine years uh, uh, growing up. And my, my father at the time was somebody who was, you know, uh, in the army and he was also, you know, teaching uh, the guerrillas to go fight in, in the bush. Um, my mother had, uh, who's from Ecuador, had uh, gone to Nicaragua to cover the war, uh, the civil war. She was a journalist at the time. And that's how I became me because she met my my biological father, who was obviously fighting the war, and I guess somehow they, she was doing, you know, the interviews, and they kind of connected, and then had me. Whoa! <laughs> 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 my face is not. I was like an emoji just then. What? What a what a story! And so, growing up in that kind of environment, then, like, you know, were you were you like consumed by by the war, or or did, were your dreams as a child, you know, beyond war, you know, because especially, you know, with something like a civil war that goes on and on and on, there is some something, some modicum of a daily life. You still there's still mm -hmm. the people, kids still play, people still have dreams, you know, but then there is the looming, you know, the reality of the of the cloud of, you know, and of violence and, you know, the limits that are put on dreams by I'm saying this as if it's something I've lived through. It's not. Like, I've watched a lot of documentaries, so I've read a lot of books. But I'm just, like, assuming, you know, like, there's a, like, what, what, how did that inform your, your childhood and the dreams that you had? Well, it's, it's funny because you don't really think about war when you're in the state of war or a civil war. Uh, you know, I used to play in, in you know, blown up tanks and, you know, my, my uh, uh, preschool had trenches and, twice a week we had to do the trench drills and whatnot and but you're a kid so you don't you don't know anything better um at the time my dreams i guess i wanted to be a baseball player my biological father was a baseball player uh for the national team but uh, he tore his shoulder and therefore uh, he could not play baseball anymore so he got enlisted to the army uh, to fight in the war um so i did a lot of sports uh you know, growing up in Central America, we didn't have a TV, so it's not like I was watching movies or I was watching, you know, I think my neighborhood at the time had one TV and that was the corner store where we would all go watch the, the baseball games or the, mm. the football games. And so that was kind of it. There was no influence of, of film. There was no influence of movies. There was no influence of any of that uh, through, through me growing up. 
So when did, when did that spark hit then? It had to have hit at some point because um, well, look where you are now <laughs> and the work you're doing now. It came very late. Um, I lived, well, uh, kind of going back uh, through, through me living in Central America, my mom remarried to uh, my stepdad who's Canadian, uh, who was working down there as well in computer systems through the Civil War. And, uh, you know, thank God to him, uh, he took us all around the world, uh, first to Turkey and then living in Saudi Arabia, you know, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, uh, Bahrain, all over the Middle East for about 11 years. And they were there for 20 years. Mm. Um, at the time when I finished uh, school in the Middle East, uh, since my stepdad is Canadian, he said, well, do you want to go study in Canada? And I told him I do, but the place is really cold. <laughs> so I want to I want to go to the warmest place in Canada because uh, he's originally from Saskatoon and we've experienced how cold it is there. You're like no, any uh, no, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> so so he mentioned that, you know we we talked about Vancouver and they came to Vancouver and and uh, shortly after yeah I, I kind of heard about the film industry at the time I was a little skating kid and I played. Uh, the drums, and I've played in a lot of bands throughout my years. And I used to do, you know, little videos of skating or little videos with my Handycam of uh, me playing the drums uh, with a couple of bands. I think I started playing punk music. Um, and so when I uh, enrolled in Capilano College at the time, now it's a university, mm. in 2000 and, I believe 2003 or four, uh, that's kind of what I showed uh, to the film school, and, and they accepted me. And I did uh, the first year was general film uh, and the second year was cinematography. And when I took cinematography, I just fell in love with it. Hmm. And I also found so wait, you were already in the film program, which kind of fell into because you were making those videos. Yeah. Um, when you discovered cinematography, you didn't go in. I that's amazing that you were in the it was the program that sparked mm -hmm. something in you the program you were already in yeah i did the first year general film and then the second year was cinematography with uh an awesome teacher ross kelsey um he's no longer around at that school obviously but uh, it's been many years and uh shortly after that i found that uh not only did i love you know the use of the camera angles lighting but throughout sort of my upbringing, I've always been a sort of a leader. Uh, you know, I used to put uh, the neighborhood kids together to uh, you know, play baseball games, or soccer games, football games, you know, and I always kind of rounded people up. Uh, mm. You know, I have a great story about uh, making our uh, baseball balls at the time. So we'd go around the neighborhood collecting old socks and you intertwine the socks together. And my mom would sew the sock by the time it was round enough to be a baseball and hard enough. And then we would go find a stick and kind of shave it down. And that's how we played baseball on the street and the dirt road. So I always used to be a facilitator. I always used to be sort of the, 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 the guy to go to, um, you know, the leader, you know, oh, what, what are we gonna do today, Andy? So, so I found through cinematography, I found my leadership coming back in mm -hmm. and that I could lead a team, you know, electrics, grips, camera, uh, directors, uh, you know, art, wardrobe, makeup. I could lead a team uh, in cinematography, yeah. uh, which then I discovered, wait a minute. Well, if I'm doing the cinematography and I'm leading this, then I should probably just produce. And so I kind of fell into producing by default. Yeah. Can we, can we talk about um, being in school as this, as this young kid who's traveled, all lived all over the world? Um, how diverse was your program, you know? And, and did the, I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't super diverse because it's Vancouver. Uh, and, and what impact did the fact that it, and you nodded, you said, nope, yeah, or you're like, yeah, not not diverse. What impact did the fact that it wasn't diverse have on, on your dreams or your plans or how you asserted yourself or, or anything 
You know, like mm-hmm. I like I know, like I'm just imagining myself in situations where I've been, you know, the only woman and the only woman of color, and I'm like, I gotta people please, and I have to be perfect, you know, because and I I can't like I, it just it changed everything. It even changed the kind of dreams that I had for myself for the longest time. So I'm just I'm curious about the impact that what you noticed and what it had on you. Well, I, I gotta say, luckily my. Um you know, living in so many different countries, I I had an open vision for everything, you know, yeah. open visualization. I never shied away from anything. I never look at anything and go, oh, you know, I'm the only one here or, or I'm the only colored person here. I, I vaguely remember there might have been one or two other colored people in, in, in the film industry, uh, sorry, in the, uh, in the program at the time. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't really let that face me at all. And I think that's because living in the Middle East, everybody comes from everywhere in mm. the Middle East. And I was going to American international schools. So I was kind of already uh, integrated in those systems of, you know, being the odd one out, you know, or being the only guy in the school with an Afro, uh, you know, walking around. So it, I didn't find too much of an impact, luckily because of my experiences and, you know, my, my, my parents and my upbringing were really opened and we were always discussing things like that, things, issues, and, you know, they're very political and war and sort of all that kind of, kind of led me to view things differently. Mm. Um, you know, a huge impact actually that came out of uh, film school is my uh, business partner, John Silverberg. We're fans of John Silverberg yes. here at the Wabear Screen Scene Podcast. Big fans, yeah. big fans. <laughs> so uh, with him and Elena Silverberg, you know, we became really good friends and we started working shortly after film school. But I, I, I didn't have too much of an impact. I mean, it was fairly diverse. Capilano at the time, it was a very small program. Um, you know, in the cinematography, I had another mulatto friend, uh, Chase Irvin, who's an incredible cinematographer who's gone and done big things like the with Spike Lee, Black Klansman and stuff like that. So we were sort of the two uh, that were uh, the mulattoes in the program. I, I got to say, every time you say that word, I like it. it, it, it I, I don't know if that's if when you say it, how do you feel when you say that word? Because when I hear it, like I just it's 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 it makes me bristle knowing the history of it and, and how it's been needs, used. I think there needs to be acceptance, you know? Um, I think history happens for a reason. Hmm. You know, I think we can't be shy or we can't shy away from the things that happen. Yeah. And we need to just be open and embrace, you know? Do I like saying it? Not necessarily. Do I feel sometimes it is necessary to say for people to make you feel that way, you know, yeah. to really kind of this open feels so violent. Eyes. I mean, my eyes are open. It, yeah. it just, it sounds like such a, gosh, I cannot wait until your next film. <laughs> Ooh, I, I don't know how you're going to make me, make me feel, make us all feel with that. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just so ready for it. I want to talk a bit about cinematography. Because I feel like there, you know, I mean, we, we, we put cinematographers on this pedestal, but I'm sure there are people listening to this podcast who are like, what is a cinematographer? What do they do? You know, how do they impact story? Um, could, could you kind of give like the 411 to my listeners who might not understand, you know, what it is that, that you do, you know, and how, and how central, you know, the cinematographer is to, you know, to to the story and to, to the art. Right. Um, well, I have a joke, first of all, it's called, okay. cinem- it's called cinematography is the art of making cinnamon buns and lighting. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Uh, cinematography all encompassing is, you know, for me personally, because other cinematographers may have other ideas of what cinematography is, but uh, cinematography to me is, inspiration of visualization and how you can put somebody else's words on screen through lighting, through setting emotion, you know, feeling through uh, production design, through wardrobe, through uh, camera, uh, through, uh, through makeup. So all encompassing, I think cinematography in an all around way is sort of the way to put art together through visuals Mm. um you know 
using all those mediums uh, because you can't just be a cinematographer with a camera. I mean, you need the production designer, you need uh, the director, you need the, the, the writer. So I always kind of look at cinematography as, as one part, one small part of a whole, you know, of like a sport, you know, I, I'm the goalkeeper maybe, or I'm the, the coach or, you know, I'm the striker. Um, but yeah, it's everything to do with lighting, uh, you know, camera angles, uh, lens choices, uh, shot choices, uh, you know, how you can tell the story between emotions, uh, whether you're shooting a romantic comedy or a thriller or horror uh, or action, which I've, I've become to kind of own myself to shoot different types of, of projects to not just say, oh, I only shoot this kind of project. Yeah. And uh, it's really just through, through your visual eye. I mean, I think experiences like mine, uh, you know, going back to even though I didn't uh, grow up watching movies or, you know, things about film, I think those experiences allow me to generate new ideas and concepts to directors or productions uh, yeah. on ways to shoot or new ways to kind of uh, uh, implement things. Like I, I, for the first time, you know, I shot a Hallmark movie and I made it really contrasting. You know, and a couple of people, you know, they're like, hey, Andy's looking a little dark, you know, and it's, but not everything has to be bright and poppy. Uh, mm -hmm. It could still, it could still have joy, it can still have feeling, it can still have emotions, but with, with a sort of sense of art, you know, um, I find in the film industry specifically here, because we work on a lot of Hollywood movies, uh, we tend to just do what Hollywood does. So I try to bring in my own, my own uh, formulas and, and sort of my own uh, experiences to, to the world of cinematography. Yeah, how would you describe, um, well, the, what is the Andy Hodgson style? Or is there, uh, is there? Because what you're also <laughs> describing is, you know, you're taking new ideas and you're, you're, you're working with the director to, you know, make sure that it, like, that it, what we see on screen represents, you know, the, the emotions and the stories. Like, so is it, how, like how, is that a, a balancing act of being like, I'm here to, to help tell the story, but I also want to put my own like artistic stamp on it, you know, my, my style. Right, right. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been interesting the journey because as you know, I've produced and shot my own movies for a very long time and just over the last, I believe like two or three years, I started doing cinematography for the, you know, the Lifetimes, the Hallmarks, uh, the Netflix. And, you know, there's a mandate uh, that you have to meet. Mm. But what I like to say is my own style is, okay, let's look at what they want to do and how do I implement what I also want to do and sort of meet in the middle. So a simple, uh, how do I explain this simply to your listeners? So for example, a say you want to cover a medium shot of this person at eye level well most shows that's what they do but for me it's like okay guys how can we cover this a little bit more interesting okay let's lower the camera a little bit and maybe let's go three quarter right so another way was you know working with with uh, david strasser on love is a piece of cake an amazing director who i, I inspired to work with more and more um as he's of Latino descent as well, you know, perhaps not shooting over the shoulder all the time, mm. you know, perhaps the three quarter, perhaps, you know, that close up can be a profile, you know, perhaps we sit back on a really wide shot and just let the, all the action happen. Right. Right. So that those kind of implementations I think are sort of my, my way of viewing things, you know, even though that there's something systematically put in place for these networks, how do we sort of implement our own uh, ideas? So, yeah. Um, are there, are there projects that you won't do now or a kind of project that you won't do? Like is, you know, I mean, because I'm talking to actors, you know, who, who are, I mean, you've been in the, the industry a long time now, right? So if I talk to actors, I'll say, you know, is, are there any roles that you won't do now? And especially actors of, of color, they'll be like, yeah, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, 
I'm not going to play the drunk guy. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be thug number one. I'm not going to, you know, play a sex worker unless these have, you know, um, substance behind them and they're not just there to like serve, you know, some, some story beat. Is it the same for you or are there kind of stories that you won't, you know, especially in a service town, you know, that you won't shoot now, you know, that you might've shot earlier on when you were building your career? Because I get the sense that for uh, you, I mean, your your heart, your you were raised in a very poli- like a political family. You know, politics is very much a a big part of your of mm-hmm. your art. It's intertwined with your passion and everything. You know, so how does it impact you know in a service town, especially the choices that you make? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess let's start with uh, you know my mains would be dramas uh, and thrillers. Um, in a service town like this, I've, you know, come to embrace sci-fi. Uh, I've come to embrace, uh, you know, rom-coms and, and love stories. But I accept anything because everything to me is a challenge. And I love new challenges. I can't shy away from a project. You know, obviously, if it's written not as good and, and you know, if I find that the, the director might not be somebody that I'm suitable for, or vice versa. Sure, but I don't shy away from any project. I think you know, we all kind of put ourselves in this bubble of, oh, I only do this because of this. And maybe acting is totally different than, than cinematography and producing. But I think there's value to everything we do. Mm. You know, I think there's inspiration and I think there's ex- exploration and I think there is discovery, you know. And something I've discovered uh, from the last few years of being the service cinematographer to a service town is, how do I get my days? How do I get those 12 pages? How do I still make it look good? How do I deal with all these teams? How do I deal with the pressure of the 14 day shoot? You know, cause El Suspiro del, del Silencio was a, a, a 31 day shoot, right? So, so you kind of get a, uh, I think there's a challenge in everything you do. And, and I love the challenge. I, uh, you know, I love to sort of be on set. And even though you may think this material it's not going to be that impactful. Well, let's put it into our own perspectives. And how is it going to impact me? How is it going to make me better? How am I going to rise above this? Because I also don't want to shy away if somebody says, hey, we have this uh, rom-com coming into town and uh, it's got X director with X this or X that. And I want to be ready for it. You know, I, I want to be ready for any style of shooting. I think a cinematographer should be able to shoot any style. Uh, whether it's high key, low contrast, or again, going back to thrillers, horror, whatever it may be. And funny enough, it's one of my first feature film I ever shot, I think it was 2007 or eight, was a horror film. Uh, but I haven't shot horror since. So I, you know, I kind of, yeah, I'm, op- I'm open to anything. I think. Open to anything. Yeah, it's, it, it just, it, you know, it, it makes you a better person. And, and like I say, it's, you keep working on your craft and you keep working on your skills. You know, you can't, can't be a good soccer player if you're not practicing, right? So yeah, I love that how many times you've mentioned sports. Like, is there? Because I mean, I'm I'm not. I I was all happy when you said sci-fi. That's like that's my sports. Yeah. I don't I don't do any sportsing whatsoever. But yeah. are are there? Is there a lot of crossover between you know your clear passion for sports and the work that you do as a, a cinematographer producer? Yeah. Now it's becoming funny. director. <laughs> yes, it's funny because uh, growing up, I did a lot of sports and I thought I was going to be an athlete. You know, I used to be in tennis clubs. I used to be in running clubs. Uh, you know, I, I, I think at the time in one of my schools, I was the fastest running a mile at like four minutes and, you know, 50 seconds when the record for the mile was three minutes and like 20 seconds. And, you know, I always thought I was going to do sports and I still do sports. Uh, you know, I every summer or winter, I still play football or, you know, softball or, or volleyball, whatever it is I can, because I think it's good for the soul. It's good to get the body moving. Uh, it's good to stay healthy, stay active, which opens up your mind. and also makes you think, you know, and, and I've gotten new ideas actually from when I've been active. And now I have a saying on set is for the sport. So everything we do on set is for the sport because, you know, a crew we're just not a crew who's working we're like a team it is a sport you know and so (laughs) i got a lot of people saying on set now we're doing it for the sport for the sport of filmmaking 
And it is a sport if you think about it, because it's not a job. You don't ever want to say, oh, I'm doing a job. So for yeah. me, it's, I, I like to say it's for the sport or doing it for the sport. Uh- I will just want to speak on behalf of um, sleeping and laziness, though, that I will like to point out that despite all of your activity and the new ideas, it was when you were sleeping and you woke up that right. you had the idea, you know, that you were going to change. What, what, what can I do to, like, change the world today? Right. So exactly. uh, in defense of being sleeping and resting. Exactly. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> resting is very good. So good. I, I'm pro-resting. And uh, I'm a... You might say I'm like an Olympian at it. You're okay. a wrestler. I'm a wrestler, yes. So if you if you could go back in time to the beginning of your career uh, as a cinematographer, producer, before you thought of being a director, very clear, these labels are very clear in my mind. Um, what advice would you give yourself? You know, you have like one minute to give yourself some advice Uh to maybe make things a little easier for yourself, you know, or would you not say anything at all, you know, because that's an I, option too. I don't think I would give myself advice. I mean, if if I was to give myself advice then and now, my career would be different. Yeah. Um, I think you really have to follow your path and you got to believe in your path. You know, I always say this, I was broke for 10 years. You know, I was getting into my late 20s. Uh, even as I was turning 30, I remember potentially calling my parents in the Middle East and saying, hey, I need money for rent. And it only has been over the last seven years that my career has really taken off. But, you know, I'd say no advice. I did the things that I did. You know, I I quit a really good job at at the age of uh, 26, I believe. I was working at the airport getting paid like 24 bucks an hour. I was a screening officer. You know, and that could, that could have been it. You know, it was getting me through film and I quit and I just said, that's it. I'm going 100%, you know, because I was kind of dabbling in a part-time job while still doing film. And uh, it took a hit on my financials, but spiritually, mentally, it just, I became the filmmaker I wanted to become by quitting things that I were standing in my way. Wow. I got to say, though, hearing that you were a screener at the airport, I'm sure you have stories to tell about that, too. That could be some great fodder oh, for, yeah. uh, for another day. Andy Hodgson, what a delight you are. Um, an enigma. That's in a mystery. Um, where can our listeners find you, follow you, celebrate you, follow your work on the social media? Are you uh, on the social media? I'm on the social media. I am, but I, I, you know, I, I don't post this often. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, trying to be an influencer uh, or any of that, but uh, you know, my Instagram handle and hot 23, a N D H O D 23, or, you know, on, on Facebook, you can follow me by my, my, uh, you know, biological name, which is Juan Andres Hodgson. Uh, you can find me on there as well. Uh, but uh, here in Canada, I go by Andy. You know, it's a little bit easier. And Andres is Andrew, and that's how I kind of got the name Andy. So, uh, yeah. Do you on, think of yourself as Andy? Like, when uh, you think no, about what your name is? Yeah, it's been, it's been a while now, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I, do, I do think myself as Andy, you know. And, and Juan Andres is kind of uh, what keeps me uh, grounded. Yeah. Is that, with, what, is that what your mom calls you? Uh, no, my parents actually called me Chavo. Uh, Chavo. Chavo de Locho was a kind of a little comedic show um, in Latin America. And he's, uh, he's kind of this kid in the neighborhood who everybody always kind of loves and very happy-go-lucky. So. It sounds like you. What do they think? What do they think of the, I mean, I, I was do, going into the, the outro of this, but I'm like, I'm just curious, like, what, is, what does your family think of the work? that you do uh they're they're super impressed uh you know i have a really large latino family uh kind of spread all over the world my mom has nine brothers and sisters whoa Um, so many cousins i'm imagining yeah so so everybody's super proud and, and i'm just very proud uh to be able to to do this for myself and for my family uh, you know, just the other night, my two aunts called me and they watched El Color Negro and they were just pretty much in tears. And they said, you make us so proud. And most of my family is very political. Mm-hmm. So to them, it was, it was really impactful. So as long as I'm making an impact on my family, friends, colleagues, and myself, uh, I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. The work is there. 
the work is there. We'll have links to some of the work in the in the footnotes for this episode, including um, how you can uh, rent, purchase um, Woodland and his brother. I cry. That's still on the circuit, the festival circuit, right? Correct. Still on yeah. the circuit. Yeah. So we got, got uh, two two more new film festivals that just picked it up. Uh, but uh, we'll we'll be letting you guys know through social media what festivals. Fantastic, and I'll, and you know whenever uh, Andy is is working on and ready to release uh, his new film, his second film entitled Mulatto, I said it. Um, yeah, please come back. Please come back and tell us all about it. My gosh. Uh, thank you for being here today. Um, thank you thank to our listeners. Thank you. I mean, what a, what a gift. Please come back anytime. I mean, your name has been evoked here, you know, invoked, <laughs> evoked, invoked here so many times. So it was good to get you in, in the chair and, and have this hour with you. Thank you to our listeners who are, are located all over the world. You can like, and subscribe, leave us a review. If you're so inclined, they help us find even more listeners. Five stars, no less, please. Um, you can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenScene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Rani Mera Firminger. And it's edited by Simon Firminger. Special thanks to Mariana Firminger for recording our Patreon ad and to Paul Firminger for technical support. We are a family business here. Uh, and to Dane, not Firminger, Devlet for the original music. Wabir Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic, dynamic film and television scene. And cut! This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com. <laughs>